Do you guys realize that Easter, if I'm not mistaken, is only three weeks away? Is that really right? Three weeks? I think that's right. I've, you've seen firsthand that I'm terrible with keeping track of time or having any idea what's going on time-wise. But I think it's three weeks away. Now, Easter is when we celebrate the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and the establishment of our only hope for salvation. And it's three weeks away. Now, if this were three weeks before Christmas, we would know it. We would hear about it on the radio. We would see it on the TV. We'd see it in all of our neighbors' houses, in every store. Our calendars would be full of plans for family get-togethers. We'd be sick and tired of hanging decorations and shopping. But Easter kind of comes and goes with a bit less fanfare. I can't speak for everybody, but for me growing up, Easter has always it's been something that we liked. You know, my family liked it, and we celebrated it, and we knew what it meant. But it sort of just comes and goes kind of quickly, without a whole lot of notice, when you compare it to Christmas. Christmas is what you wait all year long for, right? I don't think most people really have a lot of prep work to do. I mean, are you guys ready for Easter? I think most of you are probably like, yeah, I'm ready. Christmas, you guys would be stressed out right now. You know you would. In many of our churches, Easter kind of just comes and goes. Easter morning is exciting, but it just kind of comes and goes. I don't want it to be that way for us this year. It's too important. It means too much. So starting now, through Easter, the sermons and things will be pointing that way and preparing us, preparing our hearts and our minds to celebrate Easter. The story of God coming to earth in the form of a man and dying for our sins. We could do nothing about our sin situation, but God came and did everything. Defeated death, rose again, and established our only hope. That's what we celebrate. And yet many of us have celebrated it for years with numbness. Again, I can only speak for myself. But the celebration of Easter, I feel like for many, is marked by numbness. My prayer leading into Easter this year is that this numbness will dissipate. And that we would feel it. Today's passage takes place about one week prior to the crucifixion. The passage I read earlier. This is about a week before the crucifixion takes place. And what we're going to find as we study it is a warning. There's a warning in this passage about two numbing agents that Satan would use to numb us to the glory of Easter. As individuals and as a church and as the world, we're going to find warnings against two numbing agents. Picture Satan with like a little, uh, uh, what's it called? A needle. Thank you. (laughs) A needle. And in it, he has a numbing agent. And he would love nothing more for us to be numb to the glory of Easter. We're not going to allow that to happen this year. Not in our church. Have you ever been numbed for a dental procedure? I have. I certainly have. My teeth are terrible. It feels pretty good while you're numb. But as the numbness goes away, you start to feel the pain. Because something was wrong in there. So my prayer is that the numbness will dissipate. But my warning is that when numbness dissipates, often there is pain. So I want up front to warn that 
the, the next two services could bring a bit of pain. But it's good. Because if there's pain, it means there's something wrong. So I really pray that God will, will speak to us this morning. So as I mentioned, our passage takes place about a week prior to the crucifixion. And I'd love for you to follow along with me. If you have Bibles, if not, there's Bibles in the pews. It's John chapter 11, beginning at verse 45. As you flip there, I'll give you a little context. It's John chapter 11, beginning at verse 45. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. Have you heard this story? Jesus just raised Lazarus from the dead. This guy named Lazarus passes away. He dies. They send for Jesus and say, your friend Lazarus is dead. Come. Jesus comes. It's four days after Lazarus died. He prays to God. Lazarus, four days dead, comes back to life. This just happened. And that's the immediate context of what we read here. So starting at verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to see Mary, Mary is Lazarus' sister, one of his two sisters. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to see Mary and had seen what Jesus did, this raising of Lazarus from the dead after four days, put their faith in him, meaning Jesus. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to see Mary and had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him. Now, these are Jews. These are Jewish people. The whole Old Testament follows the Jewish people. And the Jewish people have this promise that a Messiah is coming. So the Jewish people, these are the ones who are looking for the Messiah. They are looking for the Messiah to come. These are the ones who witnessed the miracle. And says many of them had faith in him. I mean, this is an incredible miracle. He raises a guy from the dead after four days. That was the period that the Jews knew that they were really dead. For up to three days, some Jews believed that the spirit was still sort of in the area and there was hope for maybe revival somehow. But after four days, it was over. Wouldn't you have believed, having seen this, if we were there in the crowd? I'm pretty sure all of us would have. And many did. And as the story continues along through John, we see that this crowd grew. You see, this miracle set the whole town ablaze with excitement about Jesus and discussion about Jesus. So as the week went on, the crowd grew, and more people came, more people believed, and more people were following along. More people came to meet Lazarus, this man that Jesus raised from the dead. In fact, a lot of them gathered together and waved palm branches when Jesus came into Jerusalem for the Passover. That's what Palm Sunday is all about. It was signifying that this is the Messiah, this is the King coming. So lots of people were believing now, here's the, po- the first point I want to get to. How interesting it is to know that just one chapter over, we learn that in spite of this initial excitement, many really did not believe. In chapter 12, we realize that many of these people believed, but they didn't believe. They had faith, but at the same time, they didn't have faith. It said that many believed him, but they didn't believe so much that they were willing to admit it because they preferred the approval of men. They were afraid that they'd be scorned and thrown out of the synagogue if they believed. In fact, many of these same people were very likely the ones who later cheered as Jesus Christ was crucified and killed. Now, what's going on here? 
What is going on here? They believed, yet at the same time they didn't believe. They had faith, yet at the same time they didn't have faith. I'm going to share an illustration with you. This is an illustration that I've heard a hundred times. Because my pastor in my home church loved this illustration. So forgive me if you've heard it. It's still good. Once upon a time, there was a world-famous tightrope walker. As famous as a tightrope walker can be. There aren't really a lot of household name tightrope walkers that we know of. But this guy was a big deal in the tightrope walking community. He had done many, many just death-defying stunts. Up in the tallest buildings in New York. Strapping his cable across the buildings and walking across. You know what a tightrope walker is, right? Usually they have like the big pole and carefully walk across the tightrope. Hence the name. But he had done many amazing stunts, more so than any of the other tightrope walkers. He would even carry objects across with him, like some chairs, or like cats, he would juggle them. <laughs> so there was this amazing tightrope walker. But he wanted to go a step further. He was going to tightrope walk across the Niagara Falls. So he made the plan. He got it all together. He strapped his cable there. He had publicized it. The media was there. The crowd was there. The crowd was huge. Because at this point in history, tightrope walking was a big deal. Super Bowl, that's entertaining. Tightrope walking is where it's at. Huge crowd here to see this man tightrope walk over Niagara Falls. Okay? So they're there. The tension's building. They're waiting for him to come out of his tent. He has his tent set up there. And he comes out. And he's in his tightrope walking leotard. They all wear leotards. There's two professions that you always wear a leotard. Tightrope walking and if you work in insurance. Scott taught me that. <laughs> we can ask him about that later. So he comes out of his tightrope walking leotard. And he steps over to where the stake is with the cable. And the crowd's all there. And he says, okay, who believes that I can do this? That I can walk across this tightrope? And the crowd's like, you can do it. We know you can do it. Do it. And he says, okay. He goes back to his tent. And he comes out. He's pushing this very standard looking wheelbarrow. And he parks it. He says, okay. Who believes that I can walk across this tightrope over Niagara Falls while pushing this wheelbarrow? And the crowd's like, you can do it. I know you can do it. You're awesome. You're wearing a leotard and you're a tightrope walker. I know you can do this. <laughs> he says, okay. And he walks into the crowd. And there was one man that was particularly loud in his support that he knew this guy could do it. And he approached the man and he said, do you think I can do this? And the man said, yes, you can do this. I know you can. And he said, okay, hop in. <laughs> and the man didn't do it, didn't hop in. Nobody did. None of us would. See, there's a difference between belief and belief. Don't let me confuse you. But there is belief that Jesus is indeed who he said he was. That he is indeed the Son of God. That he is indeed the sacrifice made on our behalf. Our only hope for salvation. There's this belief. And then there's the belief in these things that causes us to throw our entire lives, our entire beings, our entire hope into his wheelbarrow so to speak. And they are two separate things. One leads to the other, but they're not the same. How can these people who saw him raise Lazarus 
and believe and who cheered him coming in with palm branches so quickly turn on him and cheer his crucifixion. They could do so because there's a difference between belief and belief. You say you believe. So do the demons. And they tremble. Our churches are filled with many who believe. But few who believe. I hope I'm not confusing you. Many give mental and intellectual assent to the truth of who Jesus is. That Jesus saves. But few trust him for that salvation with all their heart. Many love the truth that Jesus saves and sing about it and they genuinely believe it and love it. Many do that. But few commit their entire lives and their entire hope and everything they are on that. Numbing agent number one, false belief. Numbing agent, numbing, that's a hard word to enunciate very well, but you know what I'm saying. Numbing agent number one, False belief. The Easter story is, of course, boring. I remember my brother, when we would get ready to go, I probably shared this around Christmas time because he did this around Christmas time too. But as we would get dressed to go to the Easter cantata, he would be like, man, are you? I've heard this story every year. I know it. Why do I have to hear it every year? See, he believed it, but he didn't believe it. Of course the Easter story is as boring as a wheelbarrow parked in the grass, if we just believe it. But for those of us who cling to it with white knuckles as our only hope for salvation, is so much more than just a wheelbarrow parked in the grass. It's our only hope. So when Easter comes, we're hanging on to that, that story, that truth. No wonder we're numb. get confused here. I want to state it as directly as I can. Believing that Jesus saves does not save you necessarily. Believing that Jesus saves does not necessarily save you. Believing that you're sinful and in need of a Savior does not necessarily save you. Knowing facts doesn't save you. I know that I should floss every day. But I still have terrible teeth because I don't do it. But I know the truth of it. What is saving isn't just knowing these things. It's knowing these things and flinging our entire beings on the hope of it. It's flinging ourselves on these facts. It's not just knowing them. It's resting our entire lives upon them. It's giving up every other hope that you would cling to for security and for comfort and for salvation is giving up all those other hopes and holding on tight to this wheelbarrow of salvation in Jesus Christ. It's dying to yourself. It's submitting to His rulership completely. The Bible says, narrow is the gate and there are few who find it. Now there are a lot of people in church this morning, a lot across this nation, across the world, Let us not trick ourselves into thinking that because they're in church, that they really are saved. And let us not trick ourselves into thinking that because people believe the facts about Jesus, that they are saved. 
Let's pick back up in our text. There's one more numbing agent that I want to get to. We're at uh, verse 46. But some of them, the people who saw the miracle of the raising of Lazarus, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now, I do not want to get bogged down in historical data here, but it is vital to understand who these people were. The Sanhedrin was a group of 71 Jewish sages that acted kind of like a Supreme Court. They were like the Jewish legislative body of people, basically. So this meeting was a big deal. I mean, after all, this was a big deal miracle that just happened, and there was a big stir about it. So they called a, a big deal meeting about it. The chief priests, these were the second highest in authority in the Jewish religion, just below the high priest, who was also there. The chief priests were the truly elite in the Jewish religion. There's only about 200 of them. They came just under the high priest in power and authority. They had priestly lineage, and they were in charge of the temple. Now, the temple was where it all happened for the Jew. I mean, we, we kind of think of a parallel with our church, but it was so much more than that. Because that's where they communed with God. And these chief priests were in charge of this. Their authority was unquestioned by Jewish people. And there really is no Christian equivalent because... We don't see lineage as a big deal like they did, and, and this transcends even the authority that like I have as a pastor. This was a deep authority that they had. Maybe you can picture like the highest ranking Catholic people. Maybe there's more of a comparison there. So we know what the Sanhedrin was. We know what the chief priests were. The Pharisees. This is who I really want to zero in here. The Pharisees. Our youth, I hope, is getting an idea of who they are because it just keeps coming up in youth for some reason. The word Pharisee means separate one or separatist. In the Bible, there's, there's things in the Bible that explain that to be pleasing to God, you need to be separate from the world. And the Pharisees took this seriously. Took this very seriously. They wouldn't marry anyone who was not a godly Jewish person. They wouldn't hang out with anybody that was not a godly Jewish person. They would resist any force that might taint their devotion to God's Word. I'll give you two examples of this. One kind of humorous and one pretty serious. First off, a lot of people call them the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. They called them the bruised and bleeding Pharisees because they took God's Word so seriously and they were all men. They took it so seriously that if a woman was walking by them on the street, they would close their eyes. Because they don't even want the chance that they might lust after a woman. So they would close their eyes. They didn't care. And they would just run into stuff. And they'd be bruised and bleeding. And people would call them the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. Because they would just like run into doors and walls and stuff. Because if a woman was walking by, they'd just close their eyes immediately. Which I have to wonder, what, what's the danger anyway? They wore like drapes back then. <laughs> but they took this thing seriously. Another example. Once they were attacked by the Syrians on the Sabbath. Now, you know about how seriously we take the Sabbath now. That's another subject for another time. They took the Sabbath seriously. They were attacked by the Syrians. But the law says to rest on the Sabbath. And they considered taking up arms to defend themselves work. And they were not going to violate the law. 
So they allowed themselves to be slaughtered. Because they would rather die than violate God's law. Their heroic devotion to God's law gave them great influence and prestige and authority among the Jews. They enjoyed really high status. They were viewed as the elite, the elite religious people. They were the ones who did the public prayers and gave publicly. Publicly, they were the ones that you could spot and be like, that guy is a godly guy right there. You could just tell he's a Pharisee. In today's Christian terms, I would say that they could be most closely compared to like pastors. If you're going to try to draw a comparison between them and, and Christianity, which is not like a direct comparison, but they'd be, they look most like this. So now we know who they are. Let's pick back up in the text. The second, uh, let's see, where are we? The second part of verse 47. They're in this meeting, all the religious elite Jewish people. And they say, what are we accomplishing? Here's this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and they'll take away both our place and our nation. Now note what these Jewish religious elite were not asking. They were not saying, did you hear what happened? Could this be it? Could this be the Messiah? Let's search the word. Could this be it? They weren't asking that. They didn't even discuss that that we know of. They're not concerned about the miracle. What are they concerned about? Their big fear. Everyone is going to believe in him. Everyone's going to believe in him. What are we going to do? And they give two reasons why they were afraid of this. One, they were afraid that the Romans would come and they would take away their place. Two, they were afraid that the Romans were going to come and take away their nation, the nation of Israel. See, the people in this meeting were the Jewish, religious, authoritative people. Now, Rome at this time was pretty tolerant. Of religion, so long as there was not a hint of insurrection or rebellion. But, you know, I must say their fear was somewhat well founded in a way because if all these people, this crowd is growing, if all these people are growing in their support of Jesus as their Messiah, the one who was to save them from oppressors and everything, including Rome, there's a good chance that if Rome caught wind of it, they would put a stop to it and squash it. And they were afraid if they do this, once they take away our temple. You, know, you can compare it to the government taking away our church, but not really, because if they took away our church grounds, we could just meet somewhere and pretty much continue the same. If they took away the temple, that's where they came, that's where they made their sacrifices. That's where they communed with God. I like, mean, the Romans might take away our temple if we don't do something about this. And even worse, they might take away our nation. And what I think they were afraid of here. Romans had this practice of when there was a group that started to form and get stronger within Rome that would rebel against Rome, they would take them and just take a couple of them, disperse them way over here. Another couple of them, throw them way over here. Kind of like a teacher in a rowdy classroom. You find a group of friends and you just split them up so they can't cause trouble together. I mean, they didn't have email back then. There was no easy way to communicate amongst each other if Rome spread you out where you couldn't. So they were afraid, we're just going to lose our temple. They're just going to scatter us. And it's all over. So the fear was real. 
But note, they did not, they did not discuss, could this indeed be the Messiah? Let's read on in verse 49. And then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, he's the top guy. He spoke up. He said, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. See, this is the main guy. And he speaks up. And he tells them, basically, you're idiots of even considering letting this man continue. Because don't you know it's better if one man dies to save all the people than to let Rome kill us all? He's reasoning, arguing, let's kill this guy. Because if we don't, Rome's going to kill us all. Remember, this is, these are the religious, elite, Bible-knowing Jews. Now, this could have been a legitimate fear that the Romans would kill, kill them all, based on what we just mentioned a minute ago. But doesn't it seem a little bit premature to say, let's kill him? We don't have any record of Rome like threatening, we're going to kill you all if this guy doesn't stop or anything like that. So we need to understand something of Jesus' history with this group to understand why they're already concluding we need to kill this man. So let me start to convey this history just by reading a quote from Jesus that he said to and about this group. This comes from Matthew 23, if you'd like to flip over there. It's kind of a lengthy lengthy quote, but I want you to listen. It's very, it's interesting. Matthew chapter 23, I'm just going to pick up at verse 1. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. Phylacteries, little boxes that they have scripture in. They'd wear them like right smack on their head or on their arm. That's what a phylactery is. They would make these things wide. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi or teacher. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master, and you are all brothers. I do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And then when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides. If anyone, you say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple... He is bound by his oath. You blind fools. Who is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? 
You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out the net, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Ouch. Have you ever heard anything like that from Jesus' own lips? I've said to our youth many times that Jesus reserved his harshest words for the religious people, not the prostitutes or the drunkards. The religious people. You see, somewhere along the way, these religious people lost sight. What began as genuine, ardent devotion to God through His law became devotion to their own pride through His law. They're still devoted to the law. Once it was for God's glory, now they're devoted to the law for their own pride. They use the law not to worship God through obedience, but to worship themselves through obedience. They use God's word not to worship God through obedience, but to worship themselves through obedience. Yes, they took the law seriously, but with the wrong motivations. And over time, this perversion grew until Jesus was there, and the contrast was clear and obvious between Jesus, who is the image of God, and these religious people. Jesus... His presence made it clear that they had become falsely religious. Numbing agent number one, false belief. Numbing agent number two, false religion. They taught the law. This is coming from that passage we just read. They taught the law and they even added more to it to make sure we followed the law. They created a burden that no man could carry. And they acted as though they did. They were able to carry it when they couldn't. They were hypocrites. They wore scripture around their their heads and their arms. But they didn't do that as a reminder to themselves to be obedient. Or as a symbolic gesture to themselves of how important God's word is. They did it so other people would see it. Why else would they make them so big? I can't even picture what that must have looked like. Why do we put Jesus fish on the back of our cars? It's not evil to do it, but why are you doing it? Why do we do the things we do? They no longer loved God. They loved sitting in the important seat at banquet halls and in synagogues. 
They no longer love God. They love sitting in the important seats. They love to be called rabbi, a word very similar to the word pastor. You see, we pastors are not immune to these two numbing agents. There are unsaved pastors out there. No one's immune to this. We all must search our hearts this morning. It says they slam the door of faith shut in the faces of the people with their legalism. And then they themselves wouldn't even go through it. They just acted like they did. And they made their converts into hypocrites just like them. Not obedient, humble, genuine worshipers of God, but people who just put on the look. They cleaned up the outside. Love how he puts this. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. They look good on the outside. But on the inside, death, rot. Try to picture the scene of Jesus being beaten and crucified, put into our modern day context. Picture this scene, Jesus being beaten, about to be crucified. What kind of people do you picture gathered all around chanting, yes, crucify him? I would tend to picture, like I told the youth this morning, people who looked like they just rolled right out of prison, still hung over with the drug needle in their veins still. Just sweaty, dirty, sinful looking worldly people. But you know what? The ones who initiated all this didn't look like that. They looked like this. They were the religious people. Rather than being people that you'd see sitting on the front steps of like a crack house, it was people that you would see sitting in a similar seat to that. False religion is very similar to false belief. And they would both numb us to any genuine worship of God's glory through Easter. But the question is this, and hear this, hear this question. Do you have faith in the religion of Christianity? Or do you have faith in the Christ of Christianity? Do you have faith in the religion of Christianity? Or do you have faith in the Christ of Christianity? Do not sleep until you're confident of the answer to this. Because I am convinced from God's word and personal experience and just observation. That our churches are full of people who think they're saved, but they're not. Because they believe about Jesus. And they come to church, and they sing the songs, and they hear the words, and they believe the words. But it's just facts. And they think they're saved because they have faith in the religion of Christianity, but not faith in the Christ of Christianity. Pray that the Spirit will make this clear. In a moment, we're going to sing an invitational song. I want you to come forward 
If you suspect that you've all these years in church based your faith in the religion of Christianity and not in the Christ of Christianity, I want you to come forward, not to put you on the spot, not to cause a scene, but because the public nature of coming forward in church underscores the seriousness of it and the commitment of it. It says to God, I don't care what everybody else says. I don't care anymore. They've seen me in my suit for years. I don't care if they realize that underneath that suit has been rot and decay. I don't care about the approval of men. I care about the approval of you. I want you to come forward. I'm not going to announce to the congregation why you came forward. I'll likely come and talk to you and pray with you. Unless you want me to announce to the congregation why you came forward. And I hope that you can stay and talk more later. Because what I'm saying here is I do not operate under the illusion that everyone on our role and everyone who comes every Sunday is indeed saved. Because I just don't believe that that can be true. And maybe it is. And I hope it is. Let's drop the false religious front that would keep many of us from salvation. And that would keep all of us from experiencing the glory of Easter. No wonder we go through it numb. Now I struggle to decide how to conclude this. I'm not really a big emotional invitation come on up kind of pastor typically. And I struggle to decide how to conclude this. And I think I'm just going to let Jesus' own words conclude it. And this comes from Matthew chapter 7. You don't have to flip there. Actually, I'd rather you just listen. Once I get done reading this, we'll sing our song. And I'll stand right here. And if you have the courage... And if you think this was talking about you this morning, I invite you to come forward. Let's listen to Jesus' words. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, and every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And thus by your fruit you will recognize them. And this is it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell you plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Do you believe and have faith in the religion of Christianity? Or do you believe and have faith in the Christ of Christianity? Do you believe that Jesus saves and it's just fact? Or do you believe in such a way that you fling your entire being onto that fact as your only hope? 
We'll sing our invitational song now.